Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. If you're visiting with us, we've been in a series for, I believe this is our seventh week called The Gospel Gives Meaning, and we're looking at how the gospel gives meaning to all of life, and, and we're doing that through the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you would, grab a Bible and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're new to your Bible, then what you would do is open up your Bible, if you do have a hardback copy, and open it to the center, and then hang a right from there, and it'll be two books over. So that's how you make your way to Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes 7 today. One last thing with Man Camp is if you're wondering uh, how to sign up, then you can talk to Dylan. If Dylan could slip his hand up, you can talk to Dylan afterward, or you can go on our website, and you can, there's a link to sign up there. So, All right, Ecclesiastes 7. Two words to remember tonight, lean in, lean in. That's what we're going to be looking at. That's what we're going to be focusing on is to lean in. So far, where we've been in Ecclesiastes is through the first six chapters, the author has told us over and over again that this world and this life is vanity. And, and the Hebrew word there is hevel. He, he's, he's used this word to say it's, it's smoke and vapor. Trying, trying to grab hold of things in this life is like trying to grab hold of smoke or vapor or wind. It's hevel, it's vanity. And he's shown that there's vanity in toil, there's vanity in pleasure, there's vanity in commitment, and that all of life is vanity. So he's belabored this point for the first six chapters, but now in chapter seven, he's making this transition. And you'll see it because what he's uh, doing now is he's transitioning into wisdom and he's gonna use the word wisdom of Lot. And he's gonna show us what it looks like to live in this fallen, broken world in a wise way. And so he's using these kind of pithy sayings, these short, clear, concise sayings of wisdom, and that's what he's going to do in this book now, is he's making this clear transition into wisdom. However, I believe he's going to challenge our our, our understanding of what we think is wise and what we think wisdom is, and I think he's going to turn it upside down. He does that here, and he does it in uh, uh, just a multitude of ways. And I think if we will sit here and know that the author, who is known to be one of the wisest men who's ever walked the face of the earth, is actually trying to reshape what we think is wise with what true godly wisdom is. And he's doing that in a lot of ways. The reason why we're going to look at leaning in is because all of this text, all of chapter 7, which we're not going to have time to uh, go through all of it and tackle all of it verse by verse, but we're going to look at it and see that the overall theme of it is this, is that there's things in life that the author is telling us to lean into. And our natural tendency is not to lean in, it's to lean back. It's to lean away. We are naturally great escape artists. We want to escape things. We want to escape pain. We want to escape things in life. We even have in, in our society now, we have escape rooms. And, 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 and so this, this is something that's very natural for us to do and natural for us to celebrate. So we don't naturally lean in to hard things, to hard people, to hard circumstances. There are those people that have no, uh, the best picture I can give you is if you know those people who have no sense of spatial awareness, and they're always leaning in like super close to you. And if you don't know them, it's because we're talking about you and you won't get this. But it's the people that lean in a lot and you feel the tendency to lean back like this is the best thing I can tell you is, is what, what, what the author's calling us to do is to lean in like that and lean into an uncomfortable way. I typically don't lean in like that. And my wife and I just had a conversation in the back because if I have bad breath, I just don't want to hammer someone with that. I think it's unchristlike. So... Well, early on, my wife and I were just really honest about bad breath. And so, yeah, we're not rude. We just say your breath smells like hot garbage and stuff like that. So <laughs> just, just shoot straight with one another. So 
But that's where we're at. We're going to look at what it looks like to lean in and, and start to take steps forward and, and, uh, forward and lean toward what's uncomfortable for us because it's not something that we naturally do. So let's pray and dive in and see what the author has to say about it. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this opportunity to open your word, to be shaped by your word, to be taught by your word. We thank you for true wisdom, Father. The reality is, is I think I'm wise and many of us think we are wise. And the reality is, is that we look to ourselves to be uh, the Savior. We look to ourselves for our own righteousness. And Jesus, I pray that through your word, you would point us back to you. You'd point us back to the gospel. You would point us back uh, to our need for your grace. You'd point us back to our need for Jesus. And we'd walk out of here this evening with a clear and better understanding of who you are and what you've done. And therefore, who we are in Christ. Holy Spirit, move and speak to us. And speak through me today. We confess our need for you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lean in. We're going to go through a lot of categories of what it looks like to lean in. But first, the first section will be verses 1 through 4 and verse 7. It's going to be lean into death and despair. Lean into death and despair. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. It says, a good name is better than precious ointment. A good name is better than precious ointment. Uh, most people wouldn't argue with that statement. We would say that's pretty clear. It's good to have a good name. It's good to have a good reputation. It's good to be thought well of outsiders. Paul makes that clear to Timothy as well. That's, that's a good thing. What the author is saying is don't be a sellout. In this world, it's commonly said that everything has a price tag on it. What the author is saying here is that your name and your reputation and your character should not have a price tag on it. That we shouldn't be willing to sell that out. And so he says, a good name is better than precious ointment. We would say, we know that and understand that. We, we, we wouldn't sell out to uh, something rusty that someone uh, hands us. We wouldn't sell out to a latte. We wouldn't sell out to small things. But what we might sell out to is we might sell out for a better lifestyle. We might sell out for the house we've always wanted. We might sell out for a better name for the next promotion. We would sell out for peer pressure. There's a lot of things that we would sell out for. And the author saying, it's better to have a good name, actually, than the most expensive oils and ointment of this day, which were expensive, it's better to have a good name than it is to have these things. So that makes sense, but then he jumps into the uh, second part of that verse and says, and the day of death, and the day of death than the day of birth. So here's what he says, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. What is going on there? Look at what he's saying. It's better to have a good name, and you see this at the end of someone's life. The reason why he's turning wisdom on its head is because let's keep reading and we'll see here. He says the day of death and the day of birth. What he's saying here is this, and most of us would say, I don't know about that, is he would say, look, what's actually better is the day of death. So the day that you die is actually better and it's a better, he, he, he uses this, there's a standard. It's better than the day of your birth. Think about that. Most people wouldn't think that that's wise. They wouldn't say, yeah, you know what's a celebration? The day someone dies. And in fact, that's a greater celebration than the day that someone's brought into the world. We, we would say that this is probably a greater celebration, but he would say it's actually better on the day of death than the day of birth. He goes on to say in verse two, it is better to go, he emphasizes, to the house of mourning. It, it, it's better to weep than to go to the house of feasting. So it's better to go to a funeral. It's better to go to a house of mourning than it is to go to a, to a wedding celebration or to the house of feasting. Look at this. For this is the end of all mankind. In other words, we will all face this end, death, and the living will lay it to heart. He's saying, if you're wise in this room right now, what you will do is that you will let death be a teacher to you. Because everyone in this room will meet the same teacher one day, and that is death. 
And so he's saying, first, don't be a sellout. And then he's saying that it's actually better to go to the house of mourning. It's actually better to go to a funeral service than it is to go to the birth of a new child. Why would he say this? Because you can't actually know what someone lived for and what someone stands for until you get to the end of their life. That's just the reality. The only thing that you can sit over a, a really cute, adorable baby, we would all agree that, that it's cute and it's adorable, but, but you might say, oh, they have like my nose, or I love the way that they kind of just stare off in a space. But there's not a lot that you can evaluate their life on, but at the end of someone's life, you can actually evaluate their life, and you can say, that woman right there was sold out for Jesus Christ, sold out to make disciples, sold out for the gospel, loved people like crazy. That man right there was living for the kingdom of God. Or you say, that person right there, they were really, really sold out for their hobbies, for work, for their passions, for the outdoors, whatever it might be. But at the end of someone's life, you know what they lived for, you know what they stood for. And so he's saying that's actually better. But actually what else he's saying is this, is that if you're wise, you actually won't show up to a funeral and go, let's get out of here and let's go drink and celebrate this person's death. What he's saying is the person who's wise will actually sit at the funeral They'll stare at the casket and they'll ponder it. The wise will see that the casket and the coffin is a better preacher than the crib. They'll sit there after everyone else has left the room and they'll ponder death and what death is and what it's going to mean to face death one day. They'll ponder seeing that this is the end and then what they'll start to do is evaluate their life and evaluate their goals and evaluate what they're living for. The wise will actually start taking these things to heart. And then he says here in verse three, he says, and sorrow, which we would again go, this is, this is wisdom, huh? Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Interesting. The, look at verse four. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Mirth is another way to say jubilee or being happy. He's drawing this out even more. Why? because he's telling us that death is a phenomenal teacher. Now, as a child of God, you understand this, uh, that death is your enemy that's been defeated by Jesus Christ. I know Ronnie will probably make fun of me because I quote this movie all the time, but uh, The Last Samurai, there's a guy in there and he's the leader of the samurais and his name is Katsumoto. And he, and he tells Tom Cruise in the movie, he says that it's, that, that, that it's good to know your enemy. And so he studies Tom Cruise and he asks him question after question after question. Why? Because he wants to know his enemy. And in the same way, what the uh, preacher is telling us, what the author is telling us, is that though we don't celebrate death, that death is an enemy, what we should do is we should sit and let death teach us something. And we should let death teach us with what we're living for. I want to look at this because this is an interesting statement that the author says in verse three, sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. What does that mean? I'm going to read a couple stories. On an, on, on an autumn night in 1991, Gerald Sitzer lost his mother, his wife, and his four-year-old daughter to a drunk driver. He wrote a book called A Grace Disguise, and he says he wishes every man could experience what he has without the acute suffering. He has a greater gratitude for life and death, and in the pain, he was exposed to the frailty of humanity. He, he, he would go on to say that he has a, a, just a deeper sense of gratitude for life. 
Two weeks before the Sandy Hook shooting, a mom wrote named Nebula Marquez. She said this, Anna Grace and I, which was her six-year-old daughter, shared a special morning. Lunches were packed and clothes were picked out the night before, so we had extra time to snuggle. And while I lay in bed with my beautiful caramel princess, she sensed that I was distracted and asked, what's the matter, mom? I remember saying to her, nothing, baby, it's just work. She looked at me for a long time with a thoughtful stare. Then she told me, don't let them suck your fun circuits dry, mom. This was two weeks before she lost her baby girl. And the author says something, but the heart of fools, or for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. What does he mean? For, Oregon, for Oregonians, we would understand this because you actually, we, we appreciate the sunshine on a level that most people don't, that, that, that live in places like, places like Hawaii or Nevada and places like that. We know this, that when the sun comes out, most people don't show up to a church service. Take a look around. But we know and understand this, that people celebrate sunshine whenever you go through dark seasons. And we know and understand this, is that laughter has a whole new meaning when you walk through and lean into a season of death and despair. It just does. And in a lot of ways, you would work out to stretch and grow your body. In a lot of ways, when you lean into death and despair, it stretches and grows your heart to love and new capacities in new ways that you never even thought possible. And that's what the author of A Grace Disguise is trying to say. And I believe that's what the author here is trying to say. And I think what he's trying to say is this, is don't try to escape. Don't try to escape. Instead, lean into it. What are ways that we escape? I'm going to give you some for each one of these categories. But the ways that we would try to escape death and despair, I think he makes clear in verse, verse 7. Let's read it. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. So what he's saying here is this, is oppression, and that takes on many forms for many people in this room. Oppression can look like struggles that you've had internally you've never shared with anyone for a long time. Oppression can look like a lot of different things. Oppression can look like peer pressure. But what he says here is that when you're in long seasons of oppression, it has the ability to drive even the wise person mad. And then he says this, but be careful, be careful, because a bribe corrupts the heart. What does he mean? We have to tie it back in with verse one when he talks about a good name. And then he goes into this whole section about death and despair. And then he's saying this here, that don't take a bribe. What he's saying is when you go through hard seasons in life, this is when you're susceptible to taking bribes because you'll do anything to get out. You'll question God, you'll twist, uh, question his goodness, his character. This is when the enemy's lies become the loudest. But this is when people in life are willing to sell out. And, 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 and to be frank, we see this. We see this around the world. This happens in Thailand where parents sell their children into sex trafficking so they can get out of a stage of poverty. We know it's because people sell themselves into sex trafficking so they can get out of a state of poverty. There's all different ways that we see that people will do something to try to get out of oppression. How else do we try to escape leaning into death and despair? We do it by trying to fix people all the time. Like instead of allowing someone to just suffer and walk through pain and lean into that, into death and despair and go through that, what we try to do is make them laugh. I do this. Or we just try to fix their state of mind. We try to fix them instead of letting them be and entrusting them in their process and the state that they're in to the Lord, allowing them to lean in. So what does it look like? 
I would say this, is that we are called, verse 14 helps us with this. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that the man may not find out anything that will be after him. What's he saying there in verse 14? Is that when you're going through this time, lean into death, despair, lean into the season that God has you in. Don't escape, don't run from it. And the reason why is because the same God who holds the good time is the same God who holds the rough times as well. Next, we're going to look at what it looks like to lean into correction. Look at verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Verse 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, this means they burn up quick like kindling wood, so is the laughter of the fools, this also is vanity. Lean into correction. Lean into hearing a rebuke. Lean into these things. It's not something we naturally lean into. It's something that we pull away from. But think about this. How loving of an act is it for someone to correct you or to rebuke you? Now, I get there's people that make it a lifetime habit of doing this to people over and over again and try to take on the role of the Holy Spirit, probably to an unhealthy degree. But think about how loving it is for someone to love you more themselves and for them to correct you on something. And actually, he says it here. This is not my words. This is the word of God that says it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. But how many of you guys would say, I would much rather hear a compliment? Of course. But he says, this is what's wise. Do you know that security and love will allow you to receive rebukes and correction. Why? I'm not saying security in your relationships with one another. I'm saying that our security in Christ's love for us will actually allow us to receive correction and rebuke. How do we escape this? Because remember I said we're going to look at this on, on each category. There's three different ways that we escape leaning into correction. The first one is you don't know me. Okay? We naturally do this. I have heard people over and over and over again say, hey, someone came up to me and they told me something. And they, and, and they try to correct me, they try to rebuke me, but I was like, you don't know me. And you don't, <laughs> you don't know what I've been through. And you don't know my story. You don't know anything about me. But you know what's ironic to me about that statement, what's funny to me? I've never heard someone say that about a compliment. You don't know me. You can't tell me these jeans look awesome. You can't tell me I look great. You can't compliment the way that I look right now. You don't even know me. No one would say that. But as soon as a rebuke is entered or a correction, we have this you don't know me relational proximity that must be there, right? So that's the first one. We, we escape this by the you don't know me. The second one is we do the look in the mirror. It's a classic. Oh, oh, really? Have you looked in the mirror? You're coming at me like that. I don't know if you've taken a look at yourself. What's the third? The third is that we activate our inner defense lawyer. I would say the most harmful thing to our marriages is our inner defense lawyer. That we need to starve that out instead of feed it, but that's one of the most harmful things. And what does that look like? Our inner defense lawyer looks like this. As soon as you bring a rebuke or correction to me or anything to me, is that I activate this inner defense lawyer who's going to respond back to your uh, comments to me and justify why all my actions are actually awesome. Then so what we do, we naturally do that. It's actually a way that he's saying it's unwise and it's actually very loving for people to do this, but it's a way that we can escape it by activating this inner lawyer that we have. But do you know what's crazy to me about that? 
is that we have a, 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 a really confusing, I think, perspective and view on what Christian maturity is. Because I think that sometimes what people think Christian maturity is, is that as you become a Christian and grow in a Christian, it means that you uh, sin less. Instead of, if you look at Paul's progression, what does Paul say? Paul's like, I'm broken. And Paul, Paul's actually like, no, 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 I, I, I'm actually super broken. And then what does Paul say? He goes, think of all the, all the broken people that you know, all the twisted mess of people you know. I am the chief of broken people. That's how, that was the trajectory of Paul's life. Why? Because Paul didn't see that he needed less need for grace or less need for the gospel or less need for Jesus. Actual Christian maturity is seeing that you need more and more need of Jesus, more and more need of grace. But yet, when someone comes to us, and we deny it. What we're denying is that we are people in need of grace. And we're people that are uh, d- denying our need for Jesus. Instead of saying, it's loving. Though, I'll say this, you might even disagree with them, but at least receive it in the moment. I would say lean into correction by asking and receiving. Next, lean into patience. What does he say? Look here in verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. What does he mean? It's better to be a finisher. It, it, it's, not, it's not, he's saying this. This is what he's saying is, is wisdom. It's actually better to finish something than to just start a million projects. It's better to have the, the faithfulness and the patience to, to endure and walk through something than it is just to keep starting projects over and over again, to be a finisher. I think in our society, we typically praise the fast and we praise the, the go-getter, probably sometimes to the, the, the neglect of the slow and steady. Though in Aesop's fables, that's what we do. We don't praise uh, the tortoise, we praise the hare because he was patient and slow and steady and faithful. That's what he's saying. This is what a picture of wisdom is, is to actually be patient. How do we escape patience? I'll say this first, actually, is that the average person lives around 80 years. It's not a ton of time to make drastic changes to who we are. And you'll know this after you're married for some time is, is that you, you don't oftentimes make these drastic changes. You do grow. The spirit does sanctify you. And that is a good thing. That's a good process. But 80 years isn't, isn't a ton of time to grow and make these drastic changes. It, it's, it's a mist. But it is time for us to see how desperate we need Jesus. And it is time for us to evaluate and see this that we escape patience by a few things. One is that we forget our own need for patience. We forget how much God uh, has to be patient with us. We forget how much we need people's patience. And so we just typically forget, I'll be honest, that I struggle with patience probably more than just about anything else. I, I do. And that comes out every time I get, <laughs> every time I get in the car, I struggle with patience. And the reality is, is that, and, and I've said this before, is that if everyone could be as awesome as me out on the road, then there would be no problems, right? Because typically what we do is, is when we drive, uh, we go, that person's too crazy, this person's too slow, we're in the middle ground, we're the only ones that know how to do this, right? And I noticed that because in Eugene, I feel like everyone just goes really, really slow. And I'm like, you gotta, you gotta put a little pep in there. I went down to Southern California this last year and my wife and I were driving around like, these people are crazy, you know? So somehow in that, I have no patience. I struggle with patience. I struggle with patience when people cross a side, a crosswalk slowly. It's the spirit of God is not living in, inside of me. I would nudge him with my car. That's just the truth. I'm just like, move it. I just struggle with patience because I struggle to forget how much patience God has with me. 
And I struggle to remember how much patience that you guys need to have with me as well and how much I need from you. The other way is that, that we escape is through anger. Look at this. He actually tells us in verse nine, be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools. What's he saying here? Impulsive anger is a way you can escape patience. It's because you don't like the way things are in the current situation and you think you know the way they should be and the way they should be best. And so you respond in that moment with impulsive anger. Anger flows from a lack of patience. Anger flows from you trying to escape and not lean into patience. So what's the best thing that we can do? We can lean into patience. How? Through, through perseverance, through endurance, but how else? We give our kids timeouts. We can lean into patience by giving ourselves timeouts as well. Saying lean into this, patience is, 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 is a good thing. This is a big one, the next one. Lean into the present. Our tendency is to escape. To the nostalgic dreamer in here, this is big. This is really big. Because look at what he's saying in verse 10. Like zero in on this in your Bible. Say not, why were the former days better than these? He's saying, don't say, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Interesting. We long for the way things used to be. People chase Facebook relationships of, of, of people that they've known and dated in high school. We are constantly looking back to nostalgic moments. We are constantly looking back to experiences, to emotions, to things that we had in the past, to relationships that we had, to a state of mind we had, to all sorts of things that we once had, that we are looking back to the way things were and we are longing for the way things were. And he's saying here, this is very unwise. Why? Because you actually, by doing that, fail to see the good that God has for you in the present circumstances of life. And what you also do is your mind tricks you to think and forget that during that state, there was evil as well. And there were bad things happening in and around the world at that time. One author has said, if you think the world's just getting worse, then cheer up because you won't be around by the time that it gets even worse than it is right now. Why else is this unwise? C.S. Lewis talks about this. But he actually says, in, in talking about this, is that actually children and really uh, the immature believe a place, experience, or person is what they need from the past. So when you believe that there was something in the past, either a place, a person, or some experience, that that's what you need in your current state, that it's actually really unwise. And that is exactly what he is saying here in, in this, that when you long for the former days, it's actually not from wisdom that you are doing this. And so what is he actually saying, or what is he pointing to, or what is he trying to get to? Your mind is convincing you of something that's not a reality and you are forgetting this, that God has wired your heart for eternity. So when you are actually looking to the past and looking to the, nostal uh, to the nostalgic times or experiences that you had, it is showing you something. But what it's showing you is that you actually have a longing not for the past, but a longing for eternity in the future. That when you are reminded of those things in the past, you feel like you need those things or want those things back, what it is is it's meant to be a reminder that in this world, you're only here for a temporary state and for, and for a temporary time. And that longing that you're experiencing for something that passes is actually your, your soul reminding you that you were built for eternity and you're longing for something in the future, for heaven. That's one of the ways that we can escape is we can constantly daydream about the past and miss what God has for us in the present reality right now. You can do this in all sorts of ways. 
But I would say this, and it's going to sound like I'm contradicting myself. I believe for the child of God, or I'll say this, for the child of God, when you do look back to those nostalgic moments or times, I would say I would urge you to keep looking further back. Instead of just looking back to a moment that impacted us in this course of our lifetimes, I would urge you and encourage you to look further back and look back to the one moment in time that actually has the power to define who you are. Look to the life and to the death and to the, re- and to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I would say that we actually do look back. We continue to look back to that. Not to the, date, to the date we are saved, not to these nostalgic moments, but we actually look back to the one moment in history that defines who we are. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I think that when we do look back at these moments, what that does is that allows us to look forward in the future and to know that the same God that held the past and who showed that he had a perfect plan there in the midst of evil and suffering is the same God who holds the future. Now we can live presently in the moments that we are going through in this life, knowing that Jesus Christ is tender, he's loving, and he's holding the moments of our life that he has us in right now. He, he, he's, he's urging us. He's saying, please, don't think that it's wise to keep wishing and longing for days of past. Instead, look to the future. Look to heaven. Look to what God has for you in eternity. And last, I would say this, is lean into grace and the gospel. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God who can make straight what has made crooked. He's saying that, look, wisdom is a good thing, but just know this, your wisdom has limitations because you can't make what is straight crooked. Neither can you make what is crooked straight. Jump down to verse 16 and look what he says here. 16, he says, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Why should you destroy yourself? I think we know this. What what, what he's saying is wisdom is a good thing, but just know that you have very limited amounts of wisdom that you actually possess. And we know this because when you are five years old and as your age doubles, and I would say that you grow a ton in, in, in wisdom. When you are five, you are not as wise as you are when you are 10. And when you're 10, You're not as wise as you are as when you're 20, when you're 20 and 40, when you're 40, 80, you grow in wisdom, which means that the wise person person in this room actually knows that that, that we are not that wise if we're comparing ourselves to the scope of eternity and to an infinite God who has infinite wisdom. But why does he say also in verse 16, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise? Why? Because we need to lean into grace and lean into the gospel. And when you reject your need for Jesus Christ and for the grace of God, you actually escape the tenderness of Christ. You escape the love of Christ when you think that you have little need because of how righteous you are. So he's saying this, don't be overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? He's saying you have the ability to destroy yourself by thinking that you're so righteous We need to lean into grace. And one of the ways that we escape grace and one of the ways that we escape the gospel is you attach yourself to anything that you do as the basis for God's love and approval and acceptance for you. So anytime that you take any ounce of anything you do and attach that at all to to, to any amount of God's full and measurable love and his grace and his approval and his acceptance for you, you you have escaped the gospel and moved into religiosity. You've moved into moralism. You've moved into behavior modification. You've moved into something else where Jesus Christ is actually no longer the hero or the savior, but now you are. And that's not what Christianity is. When you understand that there is not 
a single thing that you do and that you can attach to God's love and acceptance and approval of you, then you lean into grace and you lean into gospel. It is a good thing. Listen, it is a good thing to lean into our need for grace and for the gospel. It's a good thing. Maybe one of the best ways that I can explain this is through an analogy. I think oftentimes the way we understand Christianity is that if we pay a fare that we get on the train. And then I think that once we're on that train, we think once we've paid the fare that however much we've paid gets us the seats. Maybe we're first class, maybe we're coach, maybe we're something like that. And I think that sadly, we think that's what Christianity is. Instead, I would say a better picture of this, and you guys can poke holes in this analogy, but at least give you some framework understanding of it is this, is Christianity looks more like this. And I'm gonna talk about Brendan Manning in, in just a second, but Christianity looks more like this, is that you passed out drunk on a train track, helpless. And a train is coming, and there's no way they can stop. And at the last second, a man steps in, and he throws you out of the way, and is completely annihilated and you are completely rescued. When you come to, the engineer of the train tells you and explains to you everything that just happened. And he tells you, the man actually threw a bag too, and you open the bag and what you see is a fresh pair of clothes to cover your tattered clothes. And what you see is a ticket that says, your, your fare has been paid. And then what happens is at that moment you get on the train and you look around and you see that everyone else has on the exact same clothes. And you start listening to people's stories, you understand that everyone came on that train by the exact same way. No one is boasting on how they got on that train. No one is boasting in the fare that they paid. Everyone is saying that there is this man that miraculously stepped in and he saved us. And he gave us these clothes. And therefore, no one boasts in what they've done. Everyone boasts in this one man. And for Christianity, that one man is Jesus Christ. Brennan Manning was a man who's, who, who's a, a, a preacher, a teacher, a theologian, and an author. I would highly recommend his books. Abba's Father, All of Grace, or Ragamuffin Gospel. And I would start with Ragamuffin Gospel. But he was asked, how is it possible that you became an alcoholic after you got saved? And he said, it is possible because I got battered and bruised by loneliness and failure. Because I got discouraged, uncertain, guilt-ridden, and took my eyes off Jesus. He forgot his own need for Christ. He, he, he wasn't leaning into grace. He wasn't leaning into the gospel. He was leaning into, him, into himself. He also says this. Do you believe that the God of Jesus loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity, that he loves you in the morning sun and in the evening rain, that he loves you when your intellect denies it, your emotions refuse it, your whole being rejects it? Do, do you believe that God loves you without condition or reservation and loves you this moment as you are, not as you should be? That's what it looks like to lean into grace and lean into the gospel, is that we are people that confess our ever-growing need for grace and for Jesus Christ. We need his life, his atoning work on the cross. We need his resurrection. What do we do from here? Three things. I'll wrap up here. Is you are not gonna lean into death and despair. You're not gonna evaluate your life you're not going to evaluate what it is to have screaming kids, but also celebrate that, that you have the sound of a kid in your room. You're not going to lean into these things. You're not going to lean into correction. You're not going to lean into patience. You're not going to lean into the present. Unless first, and this is the first thing, is that you learn to lean into Jesus Christ. And that might be obvious, but here's what I mean. In, in John 13, 23, there's this beautiful passage, and they're actually in the upper room. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, we believe that to be John, 
in that moment, it actually uh, is John explaining that he leaned into the bosom of Jesus. What he did is he placed his head onto the chest of Christ, his creator, his God, and he heard his heartbeat. He knew him on a deeper personal level. He leaned, he, he leaned into Jesus to experience a love that he had never experienced before. How do we know this? Because John wrote extensively about the love of Christ. And he said this, that perfect love cast out all fear. You will never lean in if somehow and for some reason you think that God is punishing. You will never lean into any of these things if you have fear. And if you have fear, then know this. That is the absence of perfect love because when perfect love is present that is found in a tender savior, then there is no fear. So first I would say that, that lean into perfect love, lean into Jesus Christ. Second, I would say lean into community. Song by Bill Withers, lean on me. I would say that's what we need to do, that we need to lean on one another. As men and women, we have to be people to lean on one another. I would say pray the grace prayer every day. Pray when you wake up in the morning and say, God, I need your grace this day. Show me and show me how desperately I need your grace, but help me not to refuse your grace when you provide it through other people today. Like lean on community, lean on people. It is crazy to think that we can do this on our own. God has given us the gift of people in our lives. I would say lean in to community. And last, I would say lean into mission. Lean into a missional lifestyle. Lean into this because Christians have the message of the hope of the good news of the gospel. And there is a world that doesn't have that. So they're escaping to everything else that I just said. And we actually have the one thing that we are saying you can run to. But I would encourage you to lean into getting outside of our bubbles, getting outside of our huddles, getting outside of just our safe Christian circles and love people that are different from us. Love people that don't believe the way that we love. Love people who are outside of the family of God because we have the greatest message that can transform their lives. Amen? I would encourage you this week to lean in.